Jamie D on AM950. Happy Thursday to you. We're going to talk about Medicare for All a little bit later on the program. You know, it's being touted as a way to bring single-payer health care to Minnesota. And a rally is going to be is under is being planned. That's the word I'm looking for. It's being planned next week to make that happen here in Minnesota. And they're asking doctors to show up and, you know, they're, they're scrubs. So we're going to talk to the organizers about what all that is about. But first, I want to dig into one of the bigger stories of the week, reaction to Governor Mark Dayton's veto of legislation aimed at undermining a water quality standard in Minnesota. Dayton issued the veto yesterday, and here joining us to talk about it is Steve Morse from the Minnesota Environmental Partnership. Hey, Steve, welcome to the show. Hey, glad to be here. Glad to have you on here. You know, uh, we're we've been talking about this bill for the last uh, last couple months, I think, as it's been kicking through the legislature. Finally, got up to Governor Dayton's desk, and he decided to take it out. Uh, tell us what happened. Right. Well, this this is an issue that's actually been going on for I don't know how many years. We've been involved in probably six or eight years where the legislature has been trying to uh, rework and then undermine this rule that is now uh, you know 50 years old that protects wild rice. And you know, wild rice, of course, is one of our fundamental and first agricultural and food crops in the state. It's it's basic and fundamental to the culture of the Ojibwe, and they have rights to uh, wild rice in the state. Um, and it's also kind of a canary in the ecosystem of our lakes because when wild rice doesn't grow, what it oftentimes tell you is, tells you is that the, the entire ecosystem of the lake is, is being upset. And so... Um, it's a really important species. It's kind of like it's kind of like the bees, right? And, and that we uh, follow so much now as indicators of what's going on with the with the ecology around us. Um, but what the, what's happened is the the agency has not enforced this standard because um, it's expensive and it's mostly large mining companies up north. And as they started to move to enforce it, what happened is the legislature said, "No, no, 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 you can't do this." And what they said is they said, well, the science isn't good, and, you know, the first thing you do is go after the science. And so they appropriated a million and a half dollars worth of, of public money to, to do a you know, number, I think, three lengthy scientific investigations. And those investigations came back and said, hey, this 10%, this 10 parts per million standard is good. There might be other ways to do it, but that's a good standard. Um, the agency did developed a new rule based on the, the, the flexibility or the, the, the variability between lakes. Um, that was thrown out by an administrative law judge. Um, and so finally the legislature came back and said, well, just forget about it. We're just going to, like, we're going to get rid of this standard, even though it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a federal standard adopted under the Clean Water Act. We're going to get rid of this standard, and um, uh, we're just not going to let you enforce it. And, you know, we don't know what we're going to do, but we're just going to get rid of this. And, and so it's, it really would have produced... A, it would have been immoral, it would have been illegal, and it would have produced a lot more uncertainty. And so we're very happy um, that the gov- Governor Dayton vetoed it um, yesterday. Uh, we had a chance to meet with Commissioner Stein and the governor's leaders, uh, top staff on Wednesday, and um, we're just happy to see he vetoed it. Um, uh, so it's a, it's 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 a really important step in protecting our resources and protecting our water, um, and it's also it, it also is uh, uh, these high sulfate levels also create more methylmercury. It's a really bad kind of mercury that that is consumed by fish and moves up the food chain into people, and so it's it's a really big issue. But unfortunately, it's not dead. Um, you know, we have uh, we're actually they're just uh, opening a conference committee for the big omnibus budget bill, and they have that language stuck in that budget bill also. So um, we're not done with this issue. It's it's just unfortunately another step in the process. Now this is you know th- obviously this is about the environment, but it's intertwined. We haven't really talked much about this today. We have, it's intertwined with mining because yeah. that's where when we start talking about the the bad stuff here, sulfates. That's where that comes from, is, is from mining and, and, you know, particular kinds of mining. And there, I, I, obviously what's going on here, there are interests in northern Minnesota, in the mining industry that would like to see this out the door so they can, they can do the mining. So that, that, has, that has, I think, enhanced but also complicated the discussion around this issue because it becomes more about, it, we start getting into this, well, we need jobs, and it's versus the environment, when it's really not about that. It's about science and about what we should be paying attention to in terms of how we determine our water quality. 
Right, and you make you make a really good point. And it it is really complicated because of the concerns of some of the steel companies, and then that 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 uh, uh, bleeds over to concern with local chamber of commerces and businesses, and then unions. And you know, but what, uh, the, the the sad thing is, as you say, they're trying to fight the science, and in the science science on this, what these new studies found is really is really quite solid. Um, you know, so what we need to do is take our head out of the sand and accept the science, but then we need to get creative about how we address this problem. You know, the first way to the first step in addressing the problem is is understanding it and saying, acknowledging it, accepting the problem. Um, and so there are solutions that can be done. You know, that we need to get creative to to you know we're, we're not. Our goal is not to shut down iron mining in northern Minnesota, but we do want to protect the health of our people and the health of our water. But so how do we do that is really the question that we need to be asking now. And that's kind of what the governor said. And, and, and I'll tell you, I was really happy to see after this veto, um, the United Steelworkers came out and said, you know, all right, um, let's figure out how to solve this problem. You know, let's have some discussions about how to, how, to solve, how to solve it. And so it's good to see some different voices out there that aren't just saying, well, you know, this science is no good. We, we, we want to fight the science some more. They, they've started to say, let's figure out how we, you know, how we, can, how we can work with what we know. And that's a really positive step forward. Now, when you got to meet with Governor Dayton, I'm curious, what, what was it that uh, put him over the edge on saying, yeah, I'm going to veto this, I'm, I'm going to, uh, this, is, this is the reason I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to you know, not let this pass? Was there anything in particular, just everything in general here with the environment? Well, I think, well, well, first of all, just to clarify, we met Commissioner Stein and the governor's top staff. It wasn't with the governor okay. himself on, on Wednesday right. on this issue. Um, but he, he, did, he did a really solid veto letter yesterday when he vetoed the bill. And, you know, he just said it's overreach and it's, it's not going to solve the problem. It's going to increase the uncertainty. And, yes, there are complications about how we implement this. But he said, you know, this bill goes in the wrong direction. And, you know, the, the unfortunate part is I, I really do think there are some people who don't want to solve this. This problem. They want to use this problem as a political whipping boy. So, you know, it, they want to, again, make the case that, well, you know, Governor Dayton and, you know, the DFL are against jobs in northern Minnesota, and they want to use that in the elections up there. And, you know, so we'll see if people really want to sit down and try to come to some resolution as to how we can make this workable. Um, but I think there are are some people who just really don't want to resolve it. And that became pretty clear in some of the discussions on Wednesday where they just, um, you know, want to, want to argue about science. And, you know, best to get other scientists to argue about that, but all the scientists, by and large, agree. Now, this, as you mentioned, this provision is vetoed. I mean, this bill is vetoed, but it may show mm -hmm. up as a provision in one of the, as we've been calling them, the mega omnibus bills, because they keep getting rolled together. They're, they're yep. about so many things, nobody can keep track of it all. And Governor Dayton has really warned the legislature, hey, don't give me stuff that I am against in a big bill, because it could possibly get a veto because of that. If this thing ends up in one of those big bills, do you think Governor Dayton's going to veto it again, or is it possible he might have to sign it? You know, I think um, there are some of these really key provisions where the governor has been really clear, and I think he um, will veto these bills if they don't if they don't clean them up. So they're in the bills currently. Um, you know, so this provision is in the bill they're, they're negotiating on right now. Um, another real important provision that we're following, and the governor's been very clear on, is um, a provision which stops his. Department of Agriculture from implementing the groundwater protection rule, and that's a rule to, for the first time, regulate nitrogen fertilizer um, in areas where we're having a lot of contamination with individual drinking water wells, and, um, you know, it's a modest regulation just says you can't apply it in the fall, um, but also then in areas where you have wellhead recharge areas for, we have 50 different communities around the state, or maybe, no, I think it's 30-some now on this list, where they, the contamination level is really high, that they would start regulating other practices in those wellhead areas. So a very targeted kind of a kind of a, a of a of a uh, narrowly crafted solution but the legislature says we don't want to let the commissioner go ahead and implement this and the governor said you know if you do that we're going to veto the bill so there's that and um, there are a couple other things that are really bad and and I I feel a high confidence level in our governor that he will follow through if they have these really negative things in there and, and veto them and they'll have to come back to the drawing board or come back for a special session if they want these bills passed 
Yeah, and Governor Dayton's made it clear that he is not calling a special session. Uh, this is his last term, and he has told the Republicans uh, point blank, nope, we're not doing that. So we've yeah, we got 10 it. days. We've got 10 days yeah. here to get everything uh, buttoned up and done. That's 10 days after today ends, and it's pretty much ended over at the uh, the Capitol today. Uh, is there anything else hanging environmentally that you're you're monitoring here in the last 10 days of the session? Well, actually, we, I mean, there are, there are quite a number of provisions, you know, ranging from, um, you know, the, the XL money grab where they, you know, they want to limit the fees they're paying for their nuclear waste storage down at Prairie Island in Monticello, a deal that was put together in 1994 when they said these storage facilities would be short-term. Now they want to go back and renege on that deal. Um, that's, that's, in, that's in the conference committee. A number of other things to uh, under. Um, undergird or under undercut um, some of our water protection laws. I won't even go into them. I think we have about a five-page letter that we're just finalizing now with you know all the various provisions that we're concerned with. So yeah, there are quite a few, and, and some of them are almost almost uh, comical because they're so crazy. But um, we'll see. Uh, you know, one of them that comes to mind is um, there's a proposal to um, raid the legacy amendment dollars, this, this, at this time the Clean Water Fund, in order to use it for property tax relief uh, for buffers along along stream banks. And really something that money was never intended for. So, you know, there's a lot of funny stuff going on right now. And, um, you know, we're, we're keeping posted, and we just encourage people to, to keep an eye on it and be engaged, because this is, this is when this last 10 days is when a lot of the real funny stuff happens. It is, and it's it's important for people to uh, let the, the legislature know that uh, environmental folks are, are busy watching this. You kind of sent that message last uh, Wednesday. You had a pretty good turnout, I think, for your uh, Water Action Day, didn't you? Yeah, we had a great turnout. We had, you know, it's hard to say how many people. We had at least 600 people turn out. Um, you know, well, you know, I don't know, something like 150 legislative visits. Um, a great, great rally with lots of energy, great speakers. And it was Water Action Day, and people just went and made lots of visits about these very issues that we're talking about. And, you know, maybe that's why we're seeing, in part, why we're seeing some progress on some of these things. Um, but it was, it, was, it was wonderful to see uh, so many people engaged and energized around uh, protecting our water because, you know, there are, there are a lot of interests over there every day, day in, day out, that want to, you know, do something with our water that's not the best for it. Let's say that. Usually some industry uh, who's trying to, to make use of our resources for some purpose of their own. And so it's really good when citizens get out there. It was a, it was a wonderful day. Um, great lot, uh, a bunch of speakers. Winona LaDuke, uh, former uh, U.S. Senator Dave Dernberger spoke. It was, it was, it was great. Really, really happy for all the folks that can make it there. We're talking with Steve Morse. He's with the Minnesota Environmental Partnership. And as we've just been talking about the last 10 days, the legislature are going to be very, very important because all sorts of stuff gets stuffed into bills. And you're keeping track of that. Uh, folks can uh, get alerts on what's happening by uh, going over your website, can't they? Yep, mepartnership.org, and, and uh, just click on the drop-down button about uh, getting involved, and you can sign up for action alerts or just check what's up on the website because we'll oftentimes have uh, updates or action alerts on the website to let you know of actions that you can take. So we encourage you to sign up, and uh, then we'll be in touch with you. Okay. Hey, Steve, we'll, we'll let you go because uh, I know the next 10 days are going to be busy ones, and you should probably get a little rest tonight, and we'll be checking back with you to see how uh, things turn out the rest of the session. You bet. Thanks. Always good to talk to you and, and your listeners. All right. Folks, we're going to take a break yet uh, when we come back, but I want to talk about bills that aren't dead yet. We were just kind of talking about some of those. There's one that uh, a lot of people thought was dead, but it has come back, and uh, that's a good thing. We'll talk about it next year on the Mike McEntee Show. And then we spoke of kids on the coast and different types of Hello, friends. I've been talking to you about Prairie Oaks Memorial Eco Gardens, Minnesota's first green cemetery dedicated to celebrating life and protecting our environment. One of the many wonderful things they have is something called the living urn. Ashes are buried in an urn with seedlings ultimately coming back to life as a glorious tree. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Why don't you log on to the website mngreengraves.com. Learn more about Prairie Oaks Memorial Eco Gardens. See if it might be something that's meaningful for you. 
Hello, fellow AM950 listeners. This is Jasia from Nightingale at 26 in Lindale. My wife and chef Carrie and I invite you to enjoy our local seasonal fair along with thoughtfully chosen wine and beer lists, a refreshing cocktail selection, and continued dedication to outstanding service. Nightingale's freshly remodeled patio is perfect for dinner, happy hour, brunch, and late night fun. We offer our full menu every day from 4 to 1 a.m. Two award-winning daily happy hours and weekend brunch at 10. More at NightingaleMPLS.com. Stages Theatre Company is dedicated to creating a space where diverse opinions, courageous dialogue, and community engagement is not only valued, but vital to our shared artistic and educational success. Stages Theatre Company creates a welcoming home for all. For over 30 years, Stages has supported quality theater programming for children. Stages gives opportunities for youth to be on stage, backstage, in the audience, and in the classroom. Whether you come to see a show, enroll a young person in a workshop, or benefit from their outreach programs in the community, Stages brings art to life. Learn about Stages Theater by going to stagestheater.org and become part of the magic of live theater by taking your family to an amazing show or enrolling someone you love in an education program. Stages Theater Company operates out of the Hopkins Center for the Arts, located in Main Street in the heart of downtown Hopkins. For more information on Stages Theater, go to stagestheater.org. That's stagestheater.org. Try to see it my way. Do I have to keep on talking to it's Mike McEntee back with you on AM 950. In the last segment, we were just talking about how making your voice heard makes a difference on the environment at the Minnesota Legislature. It makes a difference on some other issues, too. And here's, an, here's a, a very good example. Uh, this was a bill that had been written off this year. Uh, but popular demand, people getting out there and protesting and, uh, and, and calling and writing their, their lawmakers has uh, brought it back to life. This is the hands-free cell phone bill. It would require you not to use your hands on your cell phone while you're driving because, well, it's a little bit safer that way. Uh, the statistics show that you know, there are fewer crashes when people are not on their cell phones, when people are not driving distracted. So the bill that would make it illegal to hold a cell phone or other electronic device while driving in Minnesota may get to the House floor for a vote now after the measure was approved today by the House Ways and Means Committee. It's the furthest this bill has gotten in four years. But the bigger obstacle right now is in the Senate, where the companion bill remains stuck in a committee. Now, Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka, who has a lot of say about these things, says he is. this is not the year to pass the bill. He's saying, oh, it's kind of like the liquor bill. we got to wait a couple of years until, you know, people are really, really for this, and then we'll do it because it'll be really, really popular. Well, this is he's saying that despite a poll on his own Facebook page that drew about 1,900 responses. And again, it's not scientific. It's Facebook. But 81% were in favor of the bill. But Paul Kazelka still has not moved to do anything. Here's some here's some the statistics about this. 25% of crashes and 20% of motor vehicle fatalities in Minnesota are attributed to distracted driving. Now that covers a range of things, you know. But I think if you've been out on the roads in the last five years, you know that people messing with their cell phones, people texting while they're driving. That's a bad thing. It happens a lot and it can, you know, it can kill. It absolutely can kill. In 15 other states that ban motorists from using handheld phones, fatal crashes have dropped an average of 16% within two years. This is according to the data from the Minnesota Safety Council. So action by people who are upset about this is bringing this up, has brought it up again in the House. It may get a vote and as we were just talking about, there's 10 days left. All sorts of stuff can happen in the last 10 days. More action might get this thing moving in the Senate. Now, Governor Mark Dayton has been out on the road pitching for emergency funding for Minnesota schools. He's touring, touring the state schools to appeal to local legislators to pass his $137.9 million plan that would boost education funding before Minnesota school districts are forced this summer to lay off hundreds of teachers and draw down their reserves. I'm, I'm sure if you're, you've got a school, if you send your kids to a school here in uh, the public schools, anywhere in the metro area, this could be impacting your kids. 
or it could be if you're a grandparent, it could be impacting your kids' kids. Now, according to a survey by the Association of Metropolitan School Districts, 26 Twin Cities school districts are confronting a total shortfall of more than $108 million for the upcoming school year, with many balancing their budgets by cutting the staff, the teachers, dipping into the reserves. Another 33 greater Minnesota school districts face deficits. Senate Republicans, in reaction to Governor Dayton's plea for emergency funding, said yesterday in a statement, they didn't want to go in front of the cameras, that districts already received new money just less than a year ago. Governor Dayton shot back today in a statement, if Republican legislators want to prove that they really care about the children and teachers in their schools, they will vote in support of my education funding proposal, including emergency school aid. He goes on to say, I don't know how anyone could look at the bright young faces I have seen in four schools over the past two days and say no. Governor Mark Dayton taking it to task with the Republicans. We'll have to see how that turns out. Again, 10 days a lot can happen. I want to turn to national politics here just for a moment because uh, acting CIA director Gina Haspel has been in front of uh, the Senate, uh, the Senate hearing for her confirmation. And if you've been following things, you know that she ran a CIA operation that tortured people. And there was an interesting interchange yesterday. You may have heard this, but I think it's worth repeating even if you've heard this. Um, this started out when uh, Senator Mark Warner, he's the Democrat from Virginia, asked whether uh, Haspel would uh, cede if Trump asked her to do something she found morally objectionable. She answered, quote, Senator, my moral compass is strong. I would not allow the CIA to undertake activity I thought was immoral, even if it was technically legal. So I absolutely would not permit it. Okay, so maybe we don't have to worry about the waterboarding. Maybe we don't have to worry about the torture that's in her past. Well, then uh, Senator Camilla Harris, um, she did the follow-up questioning, which is uh, incredibly enlightening. I want to play it for you. Just It's about a minute, but I want to play it for you here. This is uh, Senator Camilla Harris questioning Gina Haspel, the CIA, uh, acting CIA director, acting CIA director, who wants to be the permanent CIA director. So uh, one question I've not heard you answer is do you believe that the previous interrogation techniques were immoral? Senator, I believe that CIA officers to whom you referred... It's a yes or no answer. Do you believe the previous interrogation techniques were immoral? I'm not asking do you believe they were legal. I'm asking do you believe they were immoral? Senator, I believe that CIA... It's did extraordinary yes no work to prevent another attack on this country given the legal tools that we were authorized Please to use. Please answer yes or no. Do you believe in hindsight that those techniques were immoral? Senator, what I believe sitting here today is that I support the higher moral standard we have decided to hold ourselves to. Can you please to. answer the question? Senator, I, I think I've answered the question. No, you've not. Do you believe the previous techniques now armed with hindsight, do you believe they were immoral? Yes or no? Senator, I believe that we should hold ourselves to the moral standard outlined in the Army Field Manual. Okay, so I understand that you're, you've not answered the question, but I'm going to move on. And she did move on, but that, again, was Democratic Senator Camilla Harris from California questioning CIA Acting Director Gina Haspel. And Haspel, as you remember, said that she has a moral compass. But as you can hear, she's not telling us which way it's pointing. Since we're on the topic of uh, what's been happening under the Trump administration and the moral compass that uh, it kind of represents, let's talk about the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau just for a moment. There's the an office that's called the Office of Students that's there. And you probably haven't heard this, but the doors have been shut as of this week. Uh, consumer advocates say it's the latest in the attempt to weaken consumer protections by the Bureau, which has been created as a result of the Great Recession. We get more on the story now from Stephanie Carson. On Wednesday, the Federal Consumer Financial Protection Bureau closed the doors of its Office of Students, put in place to handle consumer complaints regarding student loan companies. According to the Center for Responsible Lending, Americans have $1.4 trillion in student loan debt, with the average student borrower owing $30,000 when they graduate. 
Whitney Barkley Denny with the center says the office performed a vital service. The Office of Students was created to not just help educate borrowers about their student lending, but to enforce fair student lending practices against predatory for-profit colleges and predatory student loan servicers, and they've been very successful in doing that. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was created after the Great Recession in an attempt to protect consumers from fraud and unscrupulous activities of lenders. Also this week, the U.S. House voted to eliminate CFPB guidelines drafted in 2013 to combat racial discrimination by auto dealers that secure car loans for customers. Supporters of the rollbacks say current regulations are a government overreach. Barclay Denny says it now will fall on states, such as North Carolina, to protect their residents. We think that states are going to need to step up and really take a leading and active role in making sure that borrowers are protected when they borrow for school. Since it began, the agency has reclaimed $750 million from lenders that were using illegal practices. In an email sent to staff this week, Mick Mulvaney, interim director of the CFPB, said the agency would alter its mission to focus on providing consumers with information on their legal rights. I'm Stephanie Carson for the North Carolina News Service. Yep, rip off private colleges, go right ahead. The Consumer Finance Protection Bureau has closed the doors and we don't care anymore. Well, coming up next on the program, we're going to talk about Medicaid for All. There's an opportunity this week, actually coming up next week, I should say, for everybody to be heard on this topic. We'll talk about it next year on the Mike McEntee Show on AM 950. Hello, humans. This is me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 on Monday mornings at 730. This Monday, I'll talk about Dr. Megan Coffey, who interrupted a promising medical career to tend to the poorest of the poor in Haiti following the 2010 earthquake that killed 160,000. But you won't find a Wikipedia page about this idealist. She's the most modest, under-the-radar person I've highlighted thus far in my shows. Ellie 2.0 on AM 950. Woodland Stoves and Fireplaces is having their annual service special. Every stove, insert, and fireplace needs maintenance. Get it done now and save $40. You'll be ready to fire up before the cold weather hits again. From 94, take the Riverside Avenue exit and go east to 2901 Franklin Avenue. See the Twin Cities' most diverse selection of clean-burning, reliable, and environmentally smart stoves and fireplaces. Hi, I'm Peter Solak, owner of Woodland Stoves and Fireplaces. Have you ever watched your dog or cat curl up in front of a fire like a Norman Rockwell painting brought to life. It's primordial the way fire touches both the animal and the human. We have the equipment and the know-how to supply, install, and maintain stoves and fireplaces. Call us at 612-338-6606 and take advantage of our spring cleaning and maintenance special. We are online at woodlandstoves.com. The mission and the passion of Woodland Stoves and Fireplaces is to make the fire work for you. Woodland Stoves and Fireplaces, out of the ordinary products and services since 1977. At Pride Institute, being LGBTQ plus is the norm, not the exception. Their highly trained and skilled staff understand your issues and will help you live a happy, healthy life as a proud LGBTQ plus person. They offer you hope to overcome your addiction and live the life you want. Their treatment programs are designed to assist you in developing the knowledge, skills, and attitudes for long-term recovery. Therapy groups include health education, LGBTQ issues, HIV and chronic illness, trauma, grief and loss, transgender support, nicotine recovery, education and sexual health. Pride Institute offers a residential treatment program, a partial hospitalization program that includes day programming with lodging and an intensive outpatient program. If you or someone in your life can benefit from guidance and coping skills, life balance, and other tools necessary for long-term recovery, check them out at pride-institute.com or call 800-547-7433 now. Welcome back to the Mike McEntee Show here on AM 950. Single-payer health care. It's something that we've talked about that uh, a lot of folks would like to see happen in Minnesota. Well, one way to get there might be Medicare for all. And a rally is being planned next week to make that happen. Uh, we've got a couple of the organizers here. We have Ann Jones from Healthcare for All Minnesota and Ken Engelhart from Physicians for a National Health Program in Minnesota. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Hi. Hi. So thanks for 
for letting us uh, come on and invite everyone to come out to a rally for Medicare for All or and Healthcare for All Minnesotans on Tuesday, May 15th, uh, from 2 to 5 p.m. at the Capitol. We'd like to fill the rotunda with people who want to make sure that our legislators and members of the public know that we are serious about this issue. Okay. And uh, I, I've been reading a little, I want, I want to get into Medicare for All uh, in just a moment, mm-hmm. but let's talk about the rally since you brought it up. Uh, I, I was reading through the announcement on this, and you're encouraging medical people to show up for this, and they're scrubs. Tell me, tell me what the support's like for this in the medical community. You know, we, we, we know that well, nurses have always been in favor of making sure that everyone is covered. Um, we want to make sure that everyone has access to, to safe, uh, affordable health care, regardless of their ability to pay. Um, mm-hmm. So that's what I've been committed to, and that's what nurses are committed to as well. Uh, Physicians for a National Health Program was specifically organized to um, r- bring physicians on in support of this issue, and the majority of physicians also know that um, we need to remove the barriers of cost uh, for people to access our health care system. Because uh, in the bad old days, in the ba- I, I'm sorry, go ahead, Ken. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to comment on a survey that was taken of physicians um, from the Merritt Hawkins Company. They're a placement firm for physicians. This survey was uh, taken in uh, 2017, and it indicated that 56% of doctors favor a single-payer system. And actually, that same year um, in the New England Journal, um, there was a question asked of U.S. adults, and 60% of U.S. adults said that it is the responsibility of the federal government to ensure that all Americans have health coverage. And a, a lot of our folks that we've had on here, it's really the argument is is that uh, health care is a moral right. Healthcare is something. It's just like the air and the the you know, the water that we have. We have a right to have uh, good healthcare in this country. The question mm-hmm. is always, how do we pay for it? How do we how do we manage that? And that brings us to the uh, the Medicare model, which is uh, being touted as well. We should just expand that, and that would essentially get us to single payer or get us a, a long way down the road. Tell tell us how that might work and how that uh, might happen here in Minnesota, because we think of that as a national program. But is there something ha- that can be done here at the state level that would get us that direction? Uh, Yes, glad you asked that question. Uh, One option, of course, is expanding access to Medicare uh, for everyone. Most people would be interested to know that about two-thirds of health spending is already public uh, spending, so we don't really have that far to go to to bring everyone uh, into the system. But in Minnesota, we do have uh, the Minnesota Health Plan, already uh, written um, and um, it has been introduced as uh, Senate File 219 by Senator John Marty and House File 358 by Representative David Bly with a number of of, uh, co-sponsors. We would be able to implement this in Minnesota under a waiver from the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. However, with the current majorities in the legislature, we have been unable to get a hearing. So we do need a legislature friendly to health and human services. So this rally is intended to be a kickoff for the 2018 election cycle uh, to make sure that people know not only that we're serious about this, we know that the cost of health care is a top issue for Minnesota voters, and we want to put the issue front and center and uh, make a little noise at the Capitol on Tuesday, May 15th from 2 to 5, and then make sure that people uh, keep this issue front and center when they talk to their legislators, candidates, you know, perhaps uh campaign for candidates uh, in this cycle. 
Uh, we're going to have speakers uh, and maybe some music. We're going to have physicians, nurses, members of the public, patients, people who have been affected by our current system. And uh, we want to use it as not only an educational opportunity, but as an opportunity to say this is possible and let's make it happen in, in 2018. Let's make it a top issue for voters. Be a healthcare voter this time around. We're speaking with Ann Jones from Healthcare for All Minnesota and Ken Engelhardt of Physicians for a National Healthcare Program Minnesota. You're you're just talking about the bill here that Senator Marty and uh, Representative Bly have that mm-hmm. is going nowhere. It you know and you know mm-hmm. we're not we're right. not being partisan here, but what we're, we're it's basically because the Republican majorities won't allow it to get a hearing. And so, am I hearing you say? The only way that there's going to be movement on this is for people to take action at the ballot box because pretty much you, you, you just don't see that there's any way to get through the legislative logjam with the current set of uh, lawmakers that we have that uh, is a Republican majority? Uh, that is right. Say, uh, we Mike, we, we are a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization, both PNHP and Healthcare for All Minnesota. But we're pretty realistic about um, who's with us on this issue. And we just ask that people make sure that they let uh, candidates and legislators know that their vote is, is, uh, is contingent on support for making progress on this issue. We're working to educate and engage Minnesotans on the issue of health care financing reform and then build a base of support for reform so that at the grassroots level, so that people really make it clear that they are demanding change. And Ken, you were starting to talk here, but we had you on separate lines, and so we kind of lost what you said. Ken, go ahead and repeat your point on that. No, I'm basically agreeing with what Ann says. We have to demand it as a people that this is the type of system we need to serve the needs of all Minnesotans and all people that live in the United States because our current system is not serving the needs of the people. So as voters, we have to demand that our elected officials enact this legislation, and once they're in office and have enacted it, we have to make sure that we hold them accountable and deliver what Minnesotans and the, and the American people need. I, just one additional point, Mike, I would add to why Medicare is so appealing as a, as a single-payer system. Well, first of all, it's, you know, it's tried and tested. It's been in place since 1965, so Medicare has been in place for 53 years. It's, it's very successful. It pays for medical care for 57 million of the oldest and sickest Americans. It is the single payer for blind and dialysis patients, and it has an administrative cost of 3% compared to 30% for the commercial for-profit insurance industries. So that's a way to afford it is by decreasing the administrative costs and also allowing negotiation of drug prices, which are prohibited in this country, and also making clear and transparent what medical costs and treatments are going to be. Now, uh, Governor Mark Dayton has, uh, this is sort of a different topic, but I want want you to help me maybe uh, understand the difference. Governor Mark Dayton has talked about expanding Minnesota care. He wants to use his authority Mm -hmm. to expand that. Tell me, uh, tell me, would that, is that moving us along the continuum? Is it the same thing? Is it a bad idea? What's your thought on that? Mm -hmm. Um, it's it's not a bad idea. It actually would be a good interim solution, we believe, um, it, as it would help build the infrastructure in Minnesota for administering um, a, a a truly uh, comprehensive, uh, publicly funded uh, and publicly administered system that would continue to be um, delivered through our current private health care system. It, we see that as a possible interim solution, not the end goal. We believe that the Minnesota Health Plan is a comprehensive and um, a, a truly uh, affordable, efficient, equitable system 
um, ultimately that would cover everybody and reduce administrative waste. Now, I, I will point out that there are, uh, I, I, try, I think it's uh, Representative Matt Dean uh, and maybe mm-hmm. a few other folks, uh, Representative Matt Dean being a Republican, just pointing it out because it is the Republican mm-hmm. majority here that's controlling things, has been putting, mm-hmm. put, wants to put provisions in the bills that would prevent Governor Mark Dayton from expanding that, essentially saying, you cannot use this money to do this, <laughs> even though he, he currently has that, uh, has that authority. Mm. And so when we're talking about, well, we're focusing on the next election, it seems like there are issues here in the next 10 <clears throat> days here at the legislature that people should be concerned about because that could play into moving, moving the ball mm-hmm. forward or not. People should be very concerned about that. Um, I've attended hearings at the legislature, the Health and Human Services Committee, and what I have seen are uh, proposals from uh, the Republicans who are currently in the majority uh, attempting to push everybody currently on public programs into the private market, private health insurance market, with subsidies, which are public dollars. Uh, which would follow them into the private health care system, inevitably that would incur the high administrative costs associated with our current multi-payer system. And you can be quite sure that those subsidies would never really be enough to make insurance affordable for uh, the very low-income Minnesotans currently covered under Minnesota Care and, and Medicaid. It really is a pretty obvious strategy to push people into the private market and send public dollars into our wasteful private health insurance system. I find that kind of interesting. (laughs) If you remember, this current biennium, we spent half of our budget surplus propping up the private insurance market no strings attached, hoping that they would bring down the cost of premiums to something affordable for for people buying on the private insurance market. I'm not sure why we would do that. That's one-time money, and we have to keep spending that in order to, in in a hopeless attempt at making private insurance affordable. Um, Ken commented that our the administrative burden of a of a publicly administered system like Medicare is under 3% and that is true i'm not sure why we would we would ever continue to support a multi-payer system that is so wasteful and costly let me ask where that waste and cost uh, comes from because you know obviously that we got the bottom line figures here I, I can point to some of the things I might think about that because I've heard here just this last week we have all the scandals of doctors being given you know hundreds of thousands of dollars in kickbacks essentially from the drug companies to uh, go out and speak when really all they're doing is just you know giving the money to prescribe their pills uh, that right. probably aren't needed for for what they're doing. I mean, is that some of the waste that we're talking about? Is, uh, are there other areas that we know of that really need to be dealt with? I mean, that probably should be dealt with not just by Mm -hmm. moving away to uh, Medicare Mm -hmm. for all, but dealing with the system? That cost is actually built into the cost of of drugs and devices and diagnostics and fees. Mm -hmm. The administrative waste that I'm talking about is the billing, coding, marketing, um, executive and other pay, shareholder return, managing benefit plans, and so on, on the health insurance side. And then on the provider side, the hospital and clinic side, you have the burden on providers for preauthorization, documentation, responding to individual additional requests for information, and all the overhead on the hospital and clinic side. If you add all that up, um, and we um, have good studies to show that that total just administrative overhead, the, the paperwork the administrative churn that goes on to to keep this multi-payer system sort of functioning is approximately one-third of total health spending. This is it is enormously expensive and wasteful. 
And that doesn't even include the amount of time and effort that individual patients, families, and patient advocates uh, go through to try to get their insurance companies to pay. Um, we're speaking, so uh, okay. I, I'm not sure why we would continue to prop up this system hmm. when we know what the solution is. And it is a simple, straightforward, one-payer, which would be the state or federal government, um, wherein we create a health fund that is sufficient to, um, to provide care for everyone at the time of need, at the time they need it. I'll mention that um, I talked about the two um, bills currently of, uh, ready to go. You know, should we get a legislature and a governor friendly to health and human services in 2018? Um, and those are the uh, Senate File 219 and House File 358. But also there is a federal, a plan on the federal level, and the new lead sponsor is Representative Keith Ellison, and that is H.R. 676. It used to be called the Conyers Bill. Um, Representative Ellison has taken on as the lead now. And then the uh, Senate file, 1804, is uh, known as the Sanders Bill, and that's that's the proposal uh, for um, a Medicare for All in a phased-in uh, four-year plan. So there are several proposals ready to go. Okay. We obviously need the political will <laughs> to get them done. And, and that's what we, you're trying to tap into uh, for your rally, which, again, is uh, right. going to be on Tuesday next week, May 15th, from 2 to 5 p.m. down at the uh, State Capitol Rotunda in St. Paul. Uh, if, if people want more information, if uh, is there a website that they can go to for the details on the whole thing? Absolutely. Um healthcareforallmn.org is our website. Okay. Healthcareforallmn.org. Uh, and then PNHPMinnesota.org. Okay. You can also go to the mnhealthplan.org to read about the Minnesota Health Plan. And the, right. the um, Senator Marty's book is on our website, healthcareforallmn.org. Well, I hope you get good weather and a good turnout uh, next Tuesday. Thank you very much. All um, right. Thank you. We hope people will come on down and make some noise in the Capitol next Tuesday. All right. Ann Jones, Ken Engelhart, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, thank, thank you. Mike. We're going to take a break here, folks, but uh, when we get back, uh, so whatever happened to follow-up stories, uh, we'll get into those next year on the Mike McEntee Show. Now through September 1st at the Museum of Russian Art is an exhibition of Minneapolis-based painter Leon Husha. The Art of Leon Husha Balancing Act showcases more than 50 pieces from 29 different collectors in the largest show ever of his bold and colorful work. A hometown favorite, the energy of Leon's playful art spans sculptures, paintings and non-traditional media. See for yourself today and bring home a signed print or exhibition catalog from the museum store. For details, visit tmora.org. Brending Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. Hello, AM 950 listeners. I am Tabitha Montgomery, Executive Director of Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association, taking a moment to extend a very warm invitation to our first annual Powderhorn Shark Tank 
competition where our stellar panel of jurors have already selected several dozen amazing ideas from local makers, hustlers, and entrepreneurs from across Minneapolis. So mark your calendars for Saturday, May 19th between 2.30 p.m. and 6 p.m. at Powderhorn Park Recreation Center where you can join the fun and cast your vote for your favorite ideas across our expanding, emerging, and startup categories. You can also plan to enjoy the Shark Tank Marketplace, which will be stocked with many local businesses and also connect with a dozen or so business resources in our speed coaching zone if you're also working on your own big idea. See you on Saturday, May 19th. Welcome back to the Mike McEntee Show here on AM 950. You know, you wonder what happens to people after they fade from the, the limelight. And we've had a lot of candidates running for governor that have dropped out here on the uh, the DFL side. And one of them being St. Paul Mayor Chris Coleman. And it's been three months since he uh, jumped out of the campaign. He didn't do too well in the February precinct caucuses. So he decided, well, okay, I'm getting out. He'd already he had stepped aside as St. Paul mayor. We have a brand new St. Paul mayor now. So what's a guy to do when that happens? Well, today we found out Mayor, former Mayor of St. Paul, Chris Coleman, is going to be leading Twin Cities Habitat for Humanity. He's going to be replacing Metropolitan Council Chairwoman Susan High, I believe it's how it's pronounced, H-A-I-G-H, who is retiring after working as the president and the CEO of Twin Cities Habitat for Humanity for more than 13 years. Apparently, Chris Coleman has uh, been involved with Habitat for Humanity for quite some time. So that's where he's ending up. Now, not as prominent uh, is uh, uh, the the question about this next subject, which is the Dayton's monkey. Now, the Dayton's monkey was uh, only came to uh, to our attention here recently. It had been missing for decades until it was discovered last month in Dayton's, or what used to be known as Dayton's, or used to be known as Marshall Fields, or used to be known as Macy's. Now it's going to be going back on public display. The mummified remains have been turned over to the uh, Science Museum of Minnesota uh, by those in charge of renovating the uh, the store in downtown Minneapolis, which is where they found the mysterious monkey. Uh, the, sto- the monkey was stored in a project construction office, uh, has been stored, I should say, in a project construction office since it was discovered about a month ago, should be handled over, handed over to museum officials in about a week. The date will be set soon for the public ooing and eyeing, so you can start watching this thing. The The lobby where it's going to be put requires no admission fee. Now, this is not unprecedented. Uh, the Dayton's monkey is going to join two other long-departed animals on display. Kuma the polar bear was given to the museum after the female polar bear was killed by vandals in St. Paul and the Como Zoo in 1979. The zoo also gave... The museum Don, a popular gorilla who died in 1994. And where did the monkey come from? Well, nobody's really been able to nail it down for sure. There's been all sorts of conflicting stories on social media. Uh, Governor Mark Dayton at one point weighed in saying, well, he heard that it, somebody had a monkey and it disappeared when he was working there, you know, in his, uh, in his uh, grandfather's store. But nobody knows for sure. Hey, tomorrow, we've got a great show. Uh, Jack Rice is going to be in to talk about the U.S. Senate race. Plus, we're going to talk about an app that fights back against police brutality. Cell phone video recordings have been key in changing the debate about racism and police action. It can provide protection to citizens, but only if there's a camera rolling. A St. Paul inventor has come up with an app that can make that happen. We'll talk to him on the show tomorrow. I'm Mike McEntee. Thanks for listening, and Mom, thank you for listening, too. Norman Goldman is up next. Hey, hey.